Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Julian Arado, professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. We'll be discussing his paper, The Elastic Corporate Form in International Law, and I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Julian, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Julian, listeners are probably familiar with the basic attributes of American business entities. That includes limited liability for equity holders, the transferability of equity interests, the separation of ownership and control, a distinct legal personality for the entity. Does the corporate form have these attributes in other countries too? And whether yes or no, what does that mean for international investment? One of the sort of basic facts about corporate law everywhere in the world is that at least in most advanced economies and pretty much everywhere that has a corporate law that has the modern corporate form, these five characteristics that you mentioned are pretty much always present. It's one of the most useful facts about the corporation for conducting cross-border business. And it accounts for my view and in many others' views, why the corporate form is ubiquitous in transnational investment and various other forms of international business operations. It's a dependable form. It's one that you can depend on across different jurisdictions, and its features are pretty much at their core the same, whether you're talking about British company law, German corporate law, French corporate law, Japanese corporate law, whatever. That's not to say that the rules relating to each one of these details is the same everywhere. Of course, there are differences, but at bottom, The five sort of features that Crackman and his co-authors identify are in some way present, right? Limited liability might be a little stronger in some countries than in other countries, sure, but limited liability is at the essence of the corporate form everywhere. Separate legal personality is at the essence of the corporate form everywhere, transferability of shares as well. So at bottom, this is something that you see everywhere, and it's not purely contingent or accidental, right? This is a highly efficient form, a highly efficient mode of doing business. And part of that story, part of that efficiency comes from the fact that these features are dependable across borders. So that's why you see in the field of international investment, a lot of investment occurs through corporations and through chains of corporations. And that's why weakening the corporate form through international law can have perverse consequences. In the paper, you argue that ISDS tribunals in international trade law treat the corporate form as elastic First, for listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with ISDS tribunals, could you maybe give some overview of what they are? And what do you mean by elastic? What examples motivate this argument in your paper? First, let me add something before talking about international investment law. It's worth saying that in public international law, general international law, the corporate form is pretty stable. And this is because general international law basically defers to national law to figure out the rules of the corporate form. There is no general international law statute of incorporation, right? Corporations are founded in particular countries and international law just has rules about figuring out where a corporation should be understood to have come from, which is which national law applies to that corporation. This is the stuff of conflict of laws or private international law. Usually it's going to be the law of incorporation or the law of the seat. 
But international law generally doesn't really modify the basic features of the corporate form. There's no international rules uh, relating to limited liability. It just cribs off of domestic law here, to the extent international law recognizes corporations at all. International investment law is a pretty specific regime of international law, and it seems narrow. Uh, It's often for outsiders thought of as a a remote corner of international law, but it's actually one of the most robust regimes of international law that we have with over 3,000 bilateral and multilateral treaties comprising this complex regime. It's also one of the most enforceable regimes of international law because these treaties key into a dispute resolution mechanism. So it's quite a powerful system, and it's one that has turned out to be intensely norm-generative. The basic idea is that these are treaties, again, thousands of treaties, that are either standalones or part of broader trade deals like the NAFTA or its successor, the Canada-EU trade agreement, the CETA, TPP, things like that. They'll have investment chapters or they're standalone bilateral investment treaties that really serve three functions. The first is they're about removing the risk that foreign investors face in investing in another country. There's an idea that if you're investing not within your home jurisdiction, but abroad, there might be all kinds of political risks as a foreigner, right? You might not be as protected by the local law, or there might be some perception that you'll be less protected. So these treaties at least purport to credibly commit the state in inviting investment to protect basic property rights, basic private rights, protections against expropriation, protection against unfair treatment in the courts, like a denial of justice, uh, a guarantee that you will be treated as well as local nationals. That's the national treatment obligation. And so the first idea is these treaties are meant to remove foreign investment risk, specific risks relating to investing across borders. The second risk that these treaties seek to remove is the risk that if there is a dispute and your rights are violated, you don't have to rely on domestic courts that might be hostile to foreigners, right? They allow you to compel the state, an individual, a private individual, to compel the state into compulsory arbitration on the international plane between neutral arbitrators, you know, the state and the individual each appoint an arbitrator and they appoint a president. And so this sort of neutral third-party dispute resolution, and it's compulsory. This is almost unique in international law. Very rarely can individuals sue the state. And the third thing that they do is they provide very powerful mechanisms for enforcement through the New York Convention on the Enforcement of Arbitral Awards or other enforcement mechanisms. And so this avoids the risk that if the state loses a case, it can simply refuse to pay up because it's a sovereign state. So it's a really powerful mechanism. The whole point of this thing is to promote foreign investment. It's supposed to be a credible commitment by the state that it's going to play by the rules that it sets out in the hopes of getting potentially recalcitrant investors to come in. Or put in a more sophisticated way, it should reduce price, right? It should have salutary price effects. Fine. That's all good and fine in theory. The problem, at least there's a lot of problems with this regime, and and there's reams of scholarship on it. But the problem that I'm identifying here is this is exactly the kind of regime that you would think would be sensitive to ensuring the efficiency considerations of these well-honed business entities like the corporation and other business entities to make sure that foreign investment is done in a way that's efficient. And yet, here we have a regime that turns out to play really fast and loose with the basic expectations of the corporate form found in every national jurisdiction. All of a sudden, when it comes to investor state dispute settlement or ISDS, the compulsory adjudication that I mentioned before, arbitral tribunals are here 
highly reverential to some aspects of the corporate form, they're completely dismissive of corporate formalities. In particular, separate legal personality is dismissed completely in some of those cases where it's needed most, whereas things like limited liability are supercharged and given even more uh, importance than you might find in national law. So there's a sort of oscillation between reverence and dismissal of the corporate form, depending on the issue that comes before these tribunals, that causes real problems of efficiency and fairness. In the article, you argue that these dispute resolution, these arbitral tribunals, treat the corporate form as elastic. What do you mean by that? And what examples motivate the argument? These tribunals are never called upon to directly consider questions about the corporate form in an immediate sense, right? It's always ancillary questions, right? What usually happens is some investor will claim that the state expropriated its property. Very often that investor is a local corporation that is owned by foreign nationals or maybe by a chain of corporate nationals of various countries. And the treaties usually will say something like, an investor is protected and has a right to sue under ISDS under certain conditions if they have a covered investment under this treaty. And a covered investment might include stocks and shares in a local company. So there's a bunch of ways in which questions of corporate law come up, because an investor will sue, will sue a a state for harms that it has caused to the local company, and the investor as a shareholder will have a complaint about that. So problems start to arise when tribunals are asked to consider the scope of permissible shareholder rights to bring claims. These are problems that arise in domestic law as well. Under what circumstances can a shareholder bring a claim for third-party harm to the firm? Or under what circumstances can a shareholder compel the local firm to bring suit, like a shareholder derivative suit? Other issues involve limited liability. What happens if the state has a counterclaim against the corporation? Can they attach the assets of the shareholder? Normally, limited liability would suggest not. So these issues come up here. They're always ancillary issues in the cases. So on the one hand, we might excuse tribunals for playing as a corporate law scholar might see it fast and loose with these basic principles of corporate law because they're ancillary questions here. But in the aggregate, if you look at the sort of dozens of cases considering these issues, it starts to become clear that there are some very sticky patterns in the case law, the ISDS case law, that in very particular ways stretch the corporate form. Sometimes the corporate form appears incredibly narrow. Sometimes it appears incredibly broad. So that's the elasticity that I mentioned, with the benchmark being the way the corporate form tends to work in most countries. So for one example, the question of shareholder claims, specifically shareholder claims for third-party harm to the firm. In domestic law, these kinds of shareholder claims are never permitted. It's called shareholder claims for reflective loss. So if a third party harms the firm, let's say a breach of contract or some conversion of the firm's property or something like that, the correct claimant is always the company itself. The reason for that is there are lots of different stakeholders who have different kind of priority on the company's assets, right? There are shareholders, but different shareholders will have different priority under certain circumstances. There are also creditors who usually expect priority over shareholders, over firm assets, and so forth. If the firm brings a claim against the third party and wins, that money just goes back into the firm's coffers and everybody is thereby made whole. If a shareholder, though, were to come and bring the claim, against that third party and expect recovery, then that would be doing an end run potentially around normal priority rules. And this becomes a really big problem in cases where there might not be enough assets at the end of the day to go around. So a shareholder might be able to do an end run around other shareholders who expect parity or against creditors 
who would expect priority over their assets. So it's a really important feature of the separate legal personality, this entity shielding, that the firm is responsible for the disposition of its own assets and shareholders are not really able to jump into the firm's shoes and then pull out assets through litigation. So there's a very clear rule against shareholder claims for reflective loss in domestic law everywhere. The exact scope might differ in some countries. Uh, the UK has slightly narrowed it recently, but it's, it's basically a pretty key principle everywhere. And investment tribunals have regularly ruled that shareholder claims for reflective loss are absolutely fine. This is because they say, investment treaties say, look, you have a covered investment if you have stocks and shares. And if you have a covered investment and there's a harm to that investment, then you're allowed to bring a claim. That's all they say. There's no discussion of whether or not that fits with domestic policy concerns that have been well honed in all of these jurisdictions. There's no discussions of the potential problems that might be created for the making of investments and efficient investments, the problems this might have for driving up the price of credit, the problem this might have for weakening the dependability of the corporate form for various shareholders. No discussion at all. It just seems to be, look, the treaty seems silent on this. Therefore, why not let shareholders bring those claims? So it creates problems. We can discuss those problems. But it's very clear the tendency is to say, look, we're not here to talk about corporate law. We're here to talk about investment treaties. And it seems like they give shareholders the right to bring these claims. And therefore, we're going to allow it to happen. Now, there are more sophisticated treaties that seem to take away that or make clear that doesn't exist. The older NAFTA did that. And I could get into that example. But in case after case, tribunals find ways to allow shareholders to bring these claims directly, claims for third-party harms to the firm, like when the state expropriates the firm's asset or takes the company. On the other hand, there are cases where tribunals have to consider whether or not they should look through the corporate form. For example, when there's a counterclaim against a corporation and the corporation is impecunious and the state says, well, okay, so the corporation is just a, a shell company. They're actually owned by some giant a multinational, which has plenty of money. So let's attach that multinational's assets, right? And there the, the tribunal says, oh no, we would never do that. That would be a violation of the fundamental expectation of limited liability, a core feature of the corporate form. Now, mind you, the investment treaty says nothing about this either, but all of a sudden policy considerations about limited liability as a core feature of the corporate form come to bear. Whereas previously with separate legal personality, there's never that kind of analysis. And to do you one better, there are cases where tribunals draw on the presumption against veil piercing from limited liability and expand that to all kinds of other veil piercing questions and supercharge it, like in terms of asking whether or not the corporation really has the requisite nationality to bring a claim or if it's just a mere shell company. Tribunals regularly say, we don't ask. That would be a violation of the corporate veil. Put aside the fact that veil piercing doctrine and domestic law really has nothing to do with the nationality of corporations. It's about limited liability and other things, but but that this is a pretty peripheral concern. So that's the elasticity. And one could say it's all contingent, but what I try to do in the paper is try to say this is putting aside the intentions of arbitrators. There are accounts available for this elasticity that can make sense of it if you focus on functions and should give us pause and it can be kind of troubling. I'd like to get to the accounts for why there is elasticity in, in just a moment, but you mentioned that there are problems that elasticity can create, perhaps with expectations in investment law and investment treaties, perhaps expectations for economic efficiency. So what problems might this create and, and how might it upset expectations that went into the treaty drafting process or the expectations that investors had? There's a couple of different answers for that, and it's a helpful question. The, the first answer 
is the like, get me out of this question answer. Because the biggest problem is that it's really hard to say what the actual intentions of the parties were in signing these treaties early on. This might be surprising considering how powerful these treaties turned out to be uh, on the account that I've given you here. But what actually happened is there were long debates about how much international law protects foreign property for the whole 20th century. And towards the end of the 20th century, in the 70s, their sophisticated northern states started trying to get states of the global south to sign on to these treaties that would very explicitly demarcate what rights foreign investors had. Right, The first treaty is between Germany and Pakistan, but there are rapidly more and more of these, and the World Bank is promoting states of signing on to these treaties. But it's really not that clear that anyone could predict what these things would become, because the really explosive cases only come in the new millennium. There's a few cases that start to trickle out in the 90s when we already have hundreds of these treaties and really remarkable cases that woke everybody up come after about 2001. And they're all suits against Argentina after Argentina took measures to respond to its financial crisis in 2001 and two. For example, they pacified all contracts, which forced investors to take a 30% haircut. And this was a measure to protect their economy in the times of a financial crisis. But investors went ballistic for understandable reasons on all ends. And they suddenly won massive damages awards against Argentina and everybody sort of woke up to this regime. Until that point, basically the idea was this treaty regime should promote investment and make everybody have more stable expectations and be able to price in their investments more efficiently without worrying about political risk. At this point in the 2000s, the calculus really changes. So what is the harm that this elasticity causes? It's a sort of insidious harm because... Nobody really is thinking about it. The splashy issues that everybody's focusing on is, oh my God, look at this regime. Suddenly, private right holders are able to get massive multi-million, even billion dollar damages awards against states for trying to effectuate public policy through regulation, like Argentina in its emergency measures trying to respond to a really serious financial crisis or cases where cigarette companies try to stop states from passing plain packaging legislation, things like that. Nobody's worried about the corporate form. And yet, this is actually where the regime seems to fail to meet even its own basic expectations, the expectations that this regime is meant to set out for both states and investors. Nobody is winning if the regime is undermining the corporate form. So in a way, it's an even more insidious problem that this regime is undercutting private law itself and corporate law itself. You asked me, what are the perverse situations that it creates? Well, there's two different kinds. So first, the jurisprudence on shareholder claims is problematic. The jurisprudence on corporate nationality is problematic. Both are problematic in their own way. As I said, with shareholder claims, the problem is that these rules will tend to weaken the value of the corporate form, drive up the costs of credit. They'll make the corporation less dependable for those who fund corporations, creditors. Because all of a sudden, you can't know if shareholders can sneak in and gut the firm of assets at the moment where things are most critical. They weaken managerial control because a really important part of managerial control is deciding whether to litigate or deciding whether to try to make peace with the state and preserve the relationship. And all of a sudden, you have shareholders breathing down your back trying to pull out all their money right now. In domestic law, you can't do that sort of thing. Uh, here you can't. So that's all very problematic. Similarly, with corporate nationality, this allows intense treaty shopping where a firm is able to just incorporate subsidiaries anywhere in the world to take advantage of bilateral treaties that they might not normally have been able to take advantage of. And it turns even a bilateral commitment between, let's say, the United States and France into 
essentially an offer to arbitrate with nationals of any country in the world that are smart enough to just create a subsidiary in France and structure their investment through it. That wasn't really the deal. As I said, it's not really clear what the deal was, but it is clear that it wasn't that. So those are both problems, but they're not problems of elasticity per se. They're problems with how this regime has interacted with corporate law. The elasticity problem, the idea that in some place the jurisprudence is very protective of the corporate form and in another place it isn't, is about the certainty of the form itself. The problem of the elasticity is that it becomes really hard for investors to know the meaning of this previously ultra-dependable vehicle for doing business. All of a sudden, in this one seemingly narrow context, but one of incredibly critical importance in very specific investment situations, the corporate form, the good old dependable corporate form, just doesn't have the meaning that we've always thought it has, and it's very hard to know what the limits suddenly are. And it just upsets the the balance in every way. A few moments ago, you mentioned that there are some accounts that can be offered for elasticity in corporate law. Are there any doctrinal or policy or ideological explanations for this phenomenon? And does it reflect any biases, perhaps, on the part of arbitrators or other actors in the ISDS process? There are a few possible accounts of this, and I think I'm partial to one or two of them. But just to take a few off the board, the first thing one might ask, isn't there just a doctrinal explanation for all of this, right? all of this elasticity? This is a special regime of international law, a regime of investment treaties uh, that carves out the usual international law rule that we just take a page from domestic law and treat the corporate form the way domestic law treats it. So that's fine. States could sign a treaty that changes the law just the same way that a legislature can change corporate law. No problems there. The problem is that if you look at the treaties closely, it's not really clear that they do this. The whole notion that shareholders have a right to bring a claim for reflective loss, indirect shareholder claims, comes from the fact that shareholders, shares are listed as investments. So it says shares and stocks and shares are covered investments. And if you have a covered investment, you can bring a claim at international arbitration. Fine. But nowhere does it say that stocks and shares are the same kind of investment as property or a contract or intellectual property. All of those things are covered investments, but they're not the same. Each one of these reflects a different package of rights determined by domestic law. And stocks and shares, the rights that are included there, don't include the right to speak for the firm. They never do except in very limited circumstances of shareholder derivative suits, very limited circumstances. The treaties don't really tell you that you should treat a stock or a share the same way that you would treat classical Blackstonian property. It just doesn't say that. Similarly, the treaties aren't crystal clear. Corporate nationality shopping is totally fine. It gives some indications and hints that it's possible, but it's not totally clear. So this is not, there's no doctrinal explanation for all of this elasticity in the treaties themselves, no positivistic explanation. It's just that tribunals have fallen into a habit of ruling that way. So this is really judge-made law. If you were in this field of international investment law, the gut instinct would be to say, okay, none of this is that surprising. The investment tribunals do weird things all the time. And what usually accounts for that is an intense bias against states and a bias for investors. I'm giving you the usual line that you'll hear. This is not my line, uh, but there's a very common line that tribunals tend to be biased in favor of capital. And I think that this is wrong. Put aside the question of whether in general the whole regime is stacked in favor of capital or uh, against states. There is a basic asymmetry to the regime that only investors can sue states and not vice versa. And 
there are some pretty remarkably troubling awards that are very pro-capital and against the sort of public interest. I take a more moderate view on the general question, but that's not really at issue here. At issue here is an elasticity in the jurisprudence on the corporate form that turns out to be really problematic for both states and investors. If you really understand what the jurisprudence is doing, it's not useful to, certainly it's problematic for states who are finding themselves getting sued by potentially dozens of shareholders, allows shareholders multiple bites at the apple through different subsidiaries. It allows potential double recovery, all kinds of problems for states. But for investors, as I've argued, there are real ex-ante concerns for this jurisprudence. It makes doing business across borders harder because creditors now, assuming they're aware of this treaty law, are going to have to get sophisticated and they're going to have to raise the price of credit because all of a sudden they can't rely on the priority they normally expect if something goes wrong. And of course things go wrong when firms invest in countries where there's some risk that foreigners will be treated worse if push comes to shove. I'm not saying that any particular country is more risky than any other one, but the whole premise of these treaties is that there is some investment risk out there. The idea is to remove that risk. And if all of a sudden creditors find that they're going to bear the brunt of that risk, the price of credit is going to go up. So it's not clear to me that this regime is, in the way that it interacts with the corporate law, pro-investor. It actually seems to be problematic from both the perspective of the state and investors, which is a counterintuitive result. What I try to do in the paper is sit back and ask, okay, who really does benefit from this jurisprudence? And it turns out that the jurisprudence always seems to have one kind of effect. It always seems to expand the ability to bring claims. It always seems to open the door to more and more claims. It's claimants who benefit from this regime. And as I mentioned, the regime is asymmetric. Only investors can be claimants. But the interests of an investor as claimant don't necessarily align with the interests of an investor ex ante in the making of investments. Right. Once you're at the point where you want to bring a claim, things have already gone south. And these are often bet the company cases. These are massive, uh, as I said, billion and million dollar cases. So the ex post interests are get as much money as you can, smash and grab and get out because you're out of business. Right. You don't bring an ISDS dispute if there's any hope of continuing the relationship, usually, at least not if you're the company. But even for shareholders, this has got to be the end. So the interests of claimants are always served here. But the jurisprudence actually can be quite inefficient uh, from the ex-ante perspective for making investments down the line. You could think of it as a very sort of ex-post rule in that it favors claimants ex-post, but it doesn't actually favor investors or the making of investments ex-ante. So the big move that I try to make is separate a claimant from investors there. What takeaways does this article offer for listeners and perhaps any participants in the international investment law community or practitioners in the international investment law community? I think it offers different things to different groups. My hope is that it is a contribution to the sort of private law and corporate law space, which shows that in a regime of international law, which is structured with the interests of really sophisticated companies and sovereign states in mind, so pretty sophisticated actors, we suddenly see a really surprising result in how this robust treaty-based regime grapples with the corporate form. Come to expect certain basic things of the corporate form everywhere in the world, and suddenly this international regime for the dealing with cross-border property and contract disputes is blowing up everything that we've come to expect. And it does so for very strange reasons. But some of those reasons, if you really drill into it, 
aren't necessarily that surprising. It's about interest. It's about power. But it's just about making sure we figure out whose interests and powers are, are being served. It's a really interesting case study for the corporate form that I think is probably unfamiliar to most working in that space and allows us to, a foil to test some of the assumptions that we've come to rely on in corporate law space. I also take the paper to be a contribution to the investment law literature and also a contribution for the reform of international investment law, which is a major project in the works today, especially at the United Nations and the UN Commission on International Trade Law. I think the big takeaway here is there's plenty of work done on some of the individual tenets of this article, right? I've written before about shareholder claims for reflective loss. There's other writing out there on corporate nationality shopping. It's not exactly new, but what really hasn't been noticed is that these various strands of how investment tribunals uh, grapple with these different areas of corporate law, that these different strands just are incommensurable. They don't make sense when you hold them together. These are areas where tribunals have been surprisingly consistent. Usually they're really inconsistent. And yet, if you hold them against each other, there's this very surprising tension in how far these tribunals revere the corporate form. And in explaining that tension, suddenly something comes to light, which is, I think, a really valuable insight for the field. We usually assume that the field involves a sort of zero-sum battle between states and investors, states wanting to weaken the regime, investors trying to maximize the power of the regime to pull back their assets once there's a dispute with the state as a massive regret contingency. And I think what this article shows is that some issues actually aren't zero-sum. There are some things that this regime does that are problematic, intensely problematic for both states and investors, at least ex-ante, even if they serve the interests of investors in their capacity as claimants ex-post. And separating the investor from the claimant helps to appreciate the sort of values that this regime really prioritizes at the end of the day. This regime was sold to sovereign states as a way to promote foreign direct investment and to make investment more efficient and to make price go down. But it turns out that the interests being served by the regime as interpreted are expanding claims, expanding cases, and allowing more disputes rather than less. Now, that might be in the interest of access to justice, right? One could make that argument, but this regime was not sold as a regime for the promotion of access to justice. It's not a human rights regime. This regime was sold as a mechanism for increasing investment and making investment more efficient. And if it's pursuing access to justice at the expense of those things, that seems to me to be intensely problematic and should be something considered by those thinking about how and where to reform it. Our guest today has been Julian Arado, professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. We've discussed his paper, The Elastic Corporate Form and International Law. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Julian, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun to talk about this. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.